a Snyder, a child and adult holistic psychiatrist and functional and environmental medicine physician. In today's episode, I'm going to introduce you to the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is essentially what keeps our body calm and relaxed. Because of this, it's one of the most important determinants to our physical and mental well-being. But it's also what allows us to connect, feel compassion, and create. Improving its functioning is especially important for those with psychiatric conditions and those with complex chronic illness. So to cover the vagus, I'm going to have two episodes. In today's, I'll be discussing the many roles of the vagus nerve, the many body systems it influences, and the many seemingly unrelated symptoms it can impact when it's not working well. In my next podcast, I'll be talking about vagal tone, which is basically a measure of how the vagus is working. I'll talk about how we measure that and what we can each do to increase vagal tone, meaning making, it, making our vagus work better. Before we get to the science, know that the vagus is all about safety. You might be thinking you already feel safe. Um, We certainly don't face animal predators or an enemy tribe like our ancestors, but we still experience threat, and actually we experience it day in and day out. It may be a family conflict, a toxic workplace, the evening news, a political Facebook post, a honking driver, or the tone of someone's voice. The threat may be recalling what we said or didn't say, or imagining we'll lose our train of thought in a presentation. It may be the endless chatter of things we have to do. If we experienced early life adversity, abuse, trauma, The threat may be a type of person, or it could even be people in general. It may be a smell or a sound related to an event we don't consciously remember. And for those of us with complex chronic illness, random, frightening, and confusing symptoms can lead some of us to experience our own body as the threat. Other threats our body perceives that our thinking brain may not are microbes. That could be candida, mold, viruses, including COVID-19, Lyme, Bartonella, and or toxins made by those microbes. There are also toxins we accumulate from the outside, such as metal toxins, different chemical toxins, and mold toxins. Or it can be a soup of all of our toxic exposures. We come into the world with a level of toxicity And we basically have a threshold that when reached will alarm our body. And how quickly this happens, if at all, depends on the amount of exposure and how robust our inherent ability to detoxify is. And we all vary in how, how able we are to detoxify. So we can and should simplify our activities, relationships, items, and exposures to those that support our well-being. In these times, we can also, and should, I would argue, bolster our ability to detoxify. Still, however, modern life will be more stressful and toxic than our bodies were designed for. Our stress response was meant for infrequent threats, not for daily living. The consequences of this chronic stress include a cascade of stress hormones, inflammation, which is basically the immune system's response to threat, 
and the expression of certain genes, all of which lead to disease. So I'd like to elaborate just a little bit more on disrupted attachment in early life, emotional trauma, and toxicity. We have neurologic pathways in, in our body, and certainly if someone's been under chronic stress, those neurologic pathways for chronic stress will be reinforced over time. And this can especially happen in early childhood when there's a lot of our wiring essentially going on. But it can also happen later in life through trauma, repeated trauma, and the repeated recalling of traumatic events. It is well known that those with early childhood adversity are more at risk of disease later in life. This is likely because they have overly developed neurologic wiring for survival. Even when out of harm's way, their body doesn't feel safe. Similarly, people with high levels of toxicity often don't feel safe, even though they don't necessarily know why. This trauma and or toxicity can lead to a sensitization, which is basically a phenomenon in which the stress centers in the midbrain, and again, this is not the thinking part of the brain, so these stress centers are essentially staying on and reducing the functioning of the vagus nerve, which we'll be talking about. Likely, most of us with complex chronic illness or psychiatric conditions were actually born with a wiring for danger due to a mutation in the gene involved in stress hormone pathways. This is argued by Dr. Sharon McGlathery's RCCX theory, which is really um, brilliant theory and worth looking at and trying to understand. Um, there's a website that she has that goes into great detail. But I would add that just as our collection of genes isn't our destiny, neither is our wiring. And this brings us to the topic of neuroplasticity. Our nervous systems are more malleable than we might think. With the help of the vagus nerve, we can repeatedly give our body and the brain the experience of feeling safe. The magic of neuroplasticity is that we're constantly forming new neural pathways, and the more we have an experience, the more those pathways are reinforced. So if we're chronically thinking and talking about our problems or our symptoms, we're further reinforcing pathways of defense. Instead, however, we can choose to chronically think about what we're grateful for, even when it's not easy, and we can chronically help our body feel safe with the tools that access the vagus nerve that I'll be getting to in the next podcast. So think of the vagus nerve as a break, a, a break that we can use when we need to decrease our physiologic reaction to stress. And we can fine-tune that break and have it working so well that it starts to mitigate our body's response, even before we realize we're under stress. So we can become exceedingly resilient. And when we're stressed, then we're able to bounce back to a calm state more quickly. And if that weren't enough of a superpower, this ability to self-regulate allows us, without any conscious intent, to bring calm to those around us.
So when it comes to social communication, there's a lot more going on than just the words that we say to each other. We receive input about the safety of others and our environment through our eyes and ears. And without conscious thought, this information is influenced by the autonomic nervous system, which then acts on our organ systems as well as the muscles of our head and neck. Many individuals for autism, for example, are in a chronic state of threat. They often are experiencing high levels of toxicity and inflammation, as are most people with brain-related symptoms. The, those with autism, however, often will have severe sensory issues. Uh, they're often bothered by loud noises, bright lights, as well, they will often have severe deficits, which is actually the hallmark of autism in social communication. And this could be evidenced by lack of eye contact, the way they speak, or even the way they hold their head. These sensory issues and deficits in social communication are all influenced by cranial nerves, which again are all influenced by uh, the autonomic nervous system. If you've ever had depression or even the flu, it may have been hard for you to look at or even listen to others. This particular physiologic stress response is different from fight or flight. And this is what we call immobilization, a shutting down or withdrawing. So basically we have three types of uh, defensive um, reflexes essentially. So there's evidence that ancient cultures not only recognized the importance of the vagus nerve, but that they revered it. Anatomically, this large nerve would have been difficult to miss. It is the longest cranial nerve in the body, going from the lower part of the brain, down the neck, all the way into the abdomen with many offshoots along the way. Vagus actually means wandering in Latin. Ancient rituals, which have carried into contemporary religious and or spiritual practices, such as chanting, praying, meditation, dance, and postural shifts, such as kneeling and falling prostrate, would have exercised vagal pathways and resulted in a calm and even compassionate mindset. It seems that our ancestors were more embodied while we tend to be more in our heads analyzing, reasoning, calculating, and judging. For many of us, we think of our bodies as something to make look better, to work better, to give our ego what it wants. We often will outsource experiences like singing and dancing to a very few celebrities. Thoughts of singing and dancing and even of meditation can often trigger a stress response for people. Growing research however, into the impact of meditation, yoga, singing, dance, and breathing practices are proving that when it comes to lowering the stress response and thus healing from disease, really it's the body and not necessarily the mind where that is facilitated. So again, only when we feel safe and trust that we're okay, which in these modern times can take practice, are we able to grow and repair physiologically, to tap into our higher or greater selves, to create, to engage with others, and feel compassion? When our bodies perceive a threat, our, physio our physiology will kick into survival mode. And that can be, again, fight or flight, 
which might look like anger or panic, or a shutting down and immobilization, we suspect is the case with depression and autism. Such states are not conducive to connecting with others, nor to recognizing their needs or suffering. In fact, many of those amongst us who are seemingly insensitive to the experience of others likely are living in some type of chronic survival mode. So whether we intend to or not, our sense of threat or our sense of safety is conveyed by our facial expressions and the tone of our voice. Depending on how self-aware those around us are, they may take their own unconscious physiologic response into their next encounter, or they may take what their body is telling them all the way up to the reasoning part of the brain, observe what is happening, and then choose to stop the contagion. We all have the choice to observe, to set emotional boundaries, and know that we don't have to take on threats of those around us. So I'd like to talk about some definitions to help put the vagus nerve in perspective. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but if you do want more of the nuts and bolts of some of these definitions and some of the science, I would refer you to my website, Courtney Snyder, MD, and my most recent blog post, The Healing Power of the Vagus Nerve in Brain Disorders and Complex Chronic Illness, uh, goes into much more detail. So basically, I'm going to be talking first just very briefly about the central nervous system so that when I talk about the autonomic nervous system, which is not part of the central nervous system, you'll understand what I'm not talking about. So the central nervous system, if we're thinking more about the, the thinking brain, the cerebrum, where we think and learn, um, this is involved in our emotions, muscle movements, our senses, also in the brain is the brain stem, the bottom part of the brain, and it connects the thinking part of the brain with the spinal cord. And then there's the cerebellum, which controls balance and coordination. Then we have the spinal cord, which sends messages between the brain and the rest of the body. And this information is going bidirectionally, so sending messages so we can move our muscles and joints and limbs. Um, but also bringing information, sensory information, back to the brain. So again, there's a lot going on that's below the thinking part of our brain that is impacting our emotions and how sa safe and how secure we feel in the world. And so that's where the autonomic nervous system comes in, of which the vagus nerve is one of the key players. So the autonomic nervous system controls automatic functions that happen beyond the brain's conscious awareness. This starts in the brain stem, which I referred to, and spinal cord. And there are actually three parts to the autonomic nervous system. One part is the sympathetic, the other is the parasympathetic, and then the third is the enteric. So the sympathetic nervous system is activated when we are feeling under threat. This prepares our body to fight or to flee by moving blood to the heart and muscles to help us move faster 
and moves in doing so is moving blood away from the digestive tract. So it involves a constriction of blood vessels to send blood to needed areas, an increase in heart rate, uh, decrease in blood flow to the GI tract, decreased intestinal activity, increased respiratory rate, and immune system activation, which is, is especially important because if someone's in this state of fight or flight chronically, they are inevitably going to be having inflammation. And the reason for this, as far as the, our defensiveness, is that if we were going to be attacked or had an infection that was activating our sympathetic nervous system, the immune system would be ready to come in and deal with, with the potential trauma or infection. But of course, when that's happening all the time and happening when it shouldn't be happening, then that inflammation is basically damaging to the cells and tissues of our body. So we've all heard terms such as, my heart was about to jump out of my chest, I had butterflies in my stomach, I had a knot in my stomach, I couldn't catch my breath. Those are all uh, sympathetic nervous system. I mean, we have, we have a language for it, but that's fitting for what's going on in our body when we're feeling threatened or when our body is feeling threatened. We can be having that without conscious awareness. The parasympathetic nervous system, on the other hand, is that break that I referred to. It's the break on the sympathetic nervous system that allows our body to rest and digest. So, and, and two, with that, allows us to engage with others, to feel compassion, to connect, and to create. The vagus, again, is the main component. And when the parasympathetic nervous system is activated, there's a dilation of blood vessels, a decrease in heart rate, an increase in blood flow to the GI tract. There's increased gastrointestinal activity, so the bowels are moving, basically. Uh, there's decreased respiratory rate. And the enteric nervous system is what we refer to as the second brain. And I won't be talking a lot about it other than to say it's a mesh-like system of neurons that connects the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system um, to, to the GI tract. And it's how these, symptom, these systems all work together. And it's basically part of this gut-brain connection, this bi-directional connection between the brain and the GI tract that really is the way our emotions and our cognitive abilities are impacted by what's going on in the gut. So when you hear gut-brain connection, just know that it's referring to this enteric nervous system along with the sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous systems, um, as well as hormones, immune cells called mast cells, and then the microbiome, the trillions of microbes that live in the gut. So all of those are, are working together. Um, so finally, I'm going to be talking about the vagus nerve as the main component of the parasympathetic nervous system. And first I'll be introducing it, talking about what systems it affects and what influences it has on the body. So the vagus nerve 
is considered cranial nerve 10. There are 12 cranial nerves. The others are responsible for much of the sensory and motor functions of our head and neck. And actually, though we say the vagus nerve, it's actually a pair of nerves that emerge from the left and right side of the lower half of the brainstem before wandering down the neck and into the chest. And it carries output information to other parts of the body, and it carries input information from the state of the organs, um, as well as those other cranial nerves. And it supplies nerve fibers to all the organs except the adrenal glands from the neck all the way down to part of the large intestine. And I'm going to comment on this really important theory by Dr. Stephen Porges called polyvagal theory, which emphasizes that there's actually two separate nerve branches coming from two separate parts of the brain that fuse together to become the vagus. There's the dorsal aspect that relates to the shutdown, freeze, immobilization response. Again, that third defense mechanism that is different from flight or flight. And then there's the ventral aspect, which is especially important in social communication. Now, when the dorsal vagus is activated, that's usually when we're facing overwhelming stress where fighting or fleeing aren't options. Instead, our body conserves resources, which in this case is blood flow, and immobilizes or freezes or shuts down. So if you imagine that animal that feigns death reflexively when they're about to be killed by a larger animal who is seeking fresh meat and then they seem to be dead and then the lion or what have you drops it and then walks off and then the small animal jumps up and, and runs along. That is the dorsal vagus at play. And again, this is a primitive part of our nervous system. And when we are in extreme danger or have traumatic events, real, imagined, or for some people even remembered, this dorsal vagus response can occur. And I would argue that even significant toxicity can contribute to this as well. And physical responses might look like nausea and sweating, loss of um, bladder or um, anal sphincter control, slow, shallow breathing, um, or, or something called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, which involves lightheadedness, fainting, and rapid heart rate triggered by standing up or lying after lying down. Psychiatric symptoms of this dorsal vagus being activated could be disassociation, uh, feeling disconnected from your current environment, depersonalization or derealization, feeling outside of oneself or feeling that the environment isn't real, and arguably even depressive-like behaviors, which are a seemingly more chronic state of dorsal, uh, a more chronic state of um, dorsal activation and immobilization. And that would be loss of appetite, decreased energy, apathy, social withdrawal, helplessness, hopelessness, problems concentrating. The ventral vagus is a newer circuit, also called the myelinated vagus. And it is related to our feeling safe, supported, and feeling the ability to socially engage, create, and feel compassion for others.
So I like to think of the vagus nerve as having five primary roles. One is as a peacemaker, allowing us to feel calm and, and in fact to share that calm feeling with those around us. The overseer of bodily functions, as I mentioned earlier, as far as digestion, cardiovascular system, and the respiratory system. It's an activist against inflammation, a filter against sensory input, and a influencer of our social communication. So just to add a few details to that, the way it is the peacemaker is the vagus releases a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, which counteracts the effects of adrenaline, which is from the sympathetic or fight or flight response. And that acetylcholine tells our body to relax. As far as its function as the overseer of bodily functions, it basically is responsible for all things digestive, from the end of the esophagus to part of the colon. It carries information in both directions, from the brain to the gut and from the gut to the brain. And some of the more specific roles are actually salivation. It's needed for the breakdown and taste of food. The vagus is involved in swallowing and our gag reflex. It influences the production of stomach acid, which is needed for the digestion of food to prevent o- and to prevent overgrowth of certain microbes in our stomach, including candida. It also impacts the acid-base balance of other parts of the GI tract. It is responsible for gastrointestinal peristalsis, which is basically motility from the stomach all the way to the large intestine. And this is what would keep us from becoming constipated. This is essentially what is moving our bowels. Uh, It is even involved in vomiting. It is what helps us secrete um, contents from the gallbladder and the pancreas. So we need bile from the gallbladder and we need digestive enzymes from the pancreas to help us break down fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. Interestingly, also, the vagus decreases intestinal permeability and thus our vulnerability to leaky gut. Consequences of permeability in the gut lining include immune, autoimmune type symptoms, and this is where food particles could be making their way through the gut lining into the bloodstream, and then an, auto, and then an immune response occurs, which then can cause damage to particular tissues in the body resulting in autoimmune conditions. So this could be um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, it could be multiple sclerosis, it could be rheumatoid arthritis, wherever the uh, seeming area of the body is impacted, and there's often a genetic uh, influence there as well. The vagus is also involved in controlling blood sugar by way of its fibers that uh, inhibit liver gluconeogenesis. This is the generation of glucose from molecules that aren't sugar and thereby keeps our blood sugar from becoming elevated. And while this can be problematic in and of itself, it also will feed uh, microbes in the body such as yeast and mold. The vagus is important as far as our gut immune function, which I'll be talking about when I discuss inflammation. 
So as you can see, if the sphincters aren't working properly, the pH is altered, food isn't digested well, blood sugar is high, the microbiome is out of balance, and the bowels aren't moving well, then someone will be much more likely to have problems with SIBO or small intestine bowel overgrowth, uh, candida, leaky gut, food sensitivities, irritable bowel syndrome, and or inflammatory bowel disease. As far as the cardiovascular system, the right vagus is actually the one that tends to carry the fibers that supply the nerves to the heart. And again, activation through the vagus leads to a decrease in heart rate and also impacts our blood pressure. Excessive activation of the vagus, likely through that dorsal aspect, which I mentioned, can cause a sudden drop in cardiac output which means less blood flow to the brain, which then could result in someone fainting or becoming lightheaded. So again, the vagus would be involved in that fainting type of response, specifically the dorsal vagus. The vagus nerve is also impacting the respiratory symptom, keeping the larynx or the voice box open for breathing. It's involved in decreasing respiratory rate. It regulates our coughing and sneezing and it's involved um, in our sweating. As far as its role as an activist against inflammation, the vagus is basically by counteracting the fight or flight response, which is inflammatory in nature, um, by counteracting that, it's lowering inflammation in the body. But it also will prevent the increase in the production of cytokines, which are inflammatory mediators, which are inside mast cells, part of the immune system. Uh, and these cytokines can influence very par various parts of the body, including the brain. So think of the vagus nerve as something that would keep these mast cells and keep this overall inflammation in check. So we can use it to have it serve us well but not to have it so out of control that it's causing destruction in the body. They have found that increasing vagal tone, which is what I'm going to be talking about in my next podcast, will inhibit cytokine production. So again, will inhibit the, the production of these inflammatory mediators in mast cells. The fourth role is its um, role is the filter of sensory input. And despite all of the influence the vagus has on our organs and even the motor nerves of our head, uh, which I'll talk a little bit more about, uh, 80, to 80 to 90% of the nerve fibers in the vagus are sensory, meaning they bring information from the organs. Um, one example would be it tells us if our stomach is full. It also tells us what's going on in our GI tract. And again, these don't have to be conscious experiences. Um, certain microbes can cause us to become more irritable, more anxious, or have more brain fog. Sensory input from our eyes and ears, in, as well as our inner ear, which is important for balance, is also some of that incoming information that's carried through the vagus. Nociception is a term described by Dr. Porges, who I mentioned earlier with his polyvagal theory. And this word nociception relates to how neural pathways 
of the autonomic nervous system, and therefore the vagus, evaluates information from our senses about our environment and the state of our body to determine if a situation is safe or dangerous. This is what we mean when we say, listen to your body. You might call this a sixth sense or intuition. It's simply a knowing that exists outside of our thinking brain. And one example of this would be using our eyes and ears um, when we're talking to someone, um, our body will be a better indicator of, for example, picking up a fake smile or an incongruent tone of voice. So if somebody is talking to us and maybe they're telling us something that's not true or not authentic, then their mouth might be smiling, but their eyes may not be. And the words might say one thing, but the tone might say another. And so this is, again, where it's important that we listen to what our body is communicating to us. Because of this involvement of the vagus, um, if there is a nerve problem with the vagus, our overall sensitivity to incoming information can be amplified as well. And this might look like um, a hypersensitivity to loud sounds or to bright light or being bothered by certain smells. It could also impact our balance, as I mentioned, because of the inner ear. Uh, there is evidence that vagal circuitry is interconnected with the vestibular system, which would explain why uh, vagus nerve stimulation, which I'll mention in my next podcast, um, has been used to treat vertigo in vestibular migraines. Lastly, the vagus is an influencer of social communication which I've talked some about previously, but just to circle back to that. Um, and this is by way of, again, its strong influence on the cranial nerves. And their, instead of their input, which I talked about with sensitivities, now I'm talking about the output. The output which controls the muscles of the head, neck, throat, voice box. So this would influence our speech, our laughing, singing, ability to visually track and easily make eye contact. And when we are speaking and when we are laughing and when we are singing and when we are visually tracking, we actually are stimulating the vagus nerve, which will become important when we talk about strategies for improving vagal tone. Again, in the next episode, I will be discussing symptoms of vagal nerve dysfunction, how vagal tone is measured, and the many strategies and interventions that can be used to increase vagal tone. If you'd like to read more about the vagus nerve or learn more about the growing understanding of root causes of psychiatric conditions, please visit my website at CourtneySnyderMD.com. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. And I always welcome questions and topics of interest, so if you do have any thoughts, please do reach out. <laughs>